This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Hey, cat lovers. Welcome to Nine Lives with Dr. Cat. I'm your host, Dr. Katherine Prim, and we've been together for a while now, so you probably all know that I am a veterinarian, and I'm also a cat lover who is owned by a cat named Scamper. Now, today's episode is not for the faint of heart. It may be a little gory, spooky, or gross, because I want to explore cat-related grossness, and I have a special guest with me here today to do just that. And her name is Erica Engelhoff. And Erica is a former science editor for National Geographic, but now she's taking her science to a whole new level by writing for a blog called Gory Details, also with National Geographic. So today we're going to talk about the grisly, gruesome, and grim things like, would my cat eat me if I died? And a whole lot of other slightly gross things. So we'll be right back with Erica after we hear a word from our sponsors. Hi friends, this is Dr. Marty Becker, America's Veterinarian. After a traumatic experience at the veterinary office, have you ever thought to yourself, there has to be a better way? When your veterinarian is fear-free certified, you'll find your pet's vet visit is safer, more comfortable, and actually enjoyable. Your dog will go from shaking in the lobby to pulling you into the exam room with a wagging tail, and your cat will be purring inside the carrier. To find a certified fear-free veterinary near you, go to fearfreepets.com. Molly, here's your dinner. <coughs> Zeus, that's not your food. Don't let that happen to your precious cat. Elevate your cat's eating experience with the Cat Tree Tray. The Cat Tree Tray keeps your cat's food off the floor and conveniently located on the cat tree. It's the perfect way to eat. It's a beautiful wrought iron tray that easily attaches to your cat tree and keeps dogs and other critters out of your cat's dish. A must for multi-pet households. There's a 6-inch tray for large bowls and a 4-inch tray for smaller bowls. Purchase your Cat Tree Tray today. Go right now to CatTreeTray.com. That's CatTreeTray.com. C-A-T-T-R-E-E-T-R-A-Y.com. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Okay, we're back. Erica, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk to everyone about cats, which I love. But sure enough, they do plenty of gross things just like we do. Well, tell us a little bit more about yourself before we launch into the meat of the matter. 
great. Yeah. So as you said, I am a former online science editor for National Geographic. I've written for newspapers and magazines, and I do have some science background in biology as well. So I love writing about all kinds of interesting, and gross and gory science. And so I've been doing for a few years now, a blog called Gory Details, first at Science News Magazine, and now you can find it at National Geographic. And in Gory Details, I write about all kinds of gross and gory science, both animals, pets, and people, which are plenty gross too. I love it. I love the blog, and I'm so happy to be able to talk with you about some of the gross things that sort of relate to cats. And you've had a couple recent blogs that are kind of animal-related that I wanted to touch on. And one of the most interesting ones for me was, would my pet eat me if I died? That's right. <laughs> this was a really popular post that I did. I was kind of amazed, actually, at how interested people are in this topic. But, you know, it came about because a friend of mine who lives alone with pets asked me to look into this. She said, you know, this kind of freaks me out. You know, is it true that my cat might eat me if I died? And I said, you know, I don't know if that's a myth or something that really happens. I'm going to look into it. So I dived into the scientific literature looking for actual case studies and reports from forensic scientists. And what I found was pretty amazing. I never really thought of that before I read your blog. I honestly haven't given it much thought. And you said that people blame cats a lot, but it's, it's not always cats. Can you go into that a little more? Sure. Yeah, people do seem to blame cats. I don't really know why, but a number of people said to me, oh, yeah, I've heard that your cat will definitely start biting you or eating you if you die, but that dogs won't or that it's less common in dogs. People seem to have the impression that dogs are more loyal to their owners than cats are and that somehow that would translate into dogs being less willing to eat their owner if they died. I did not find any evidence that that's the case. You, it seems like the reality is that under the right circumstances, any pet might scavenge or eat parts of their owner if they die. And it doesn't really probably matter if it's a dog or a cat. The main difference is that dogs being larger can really do more damage. And so what I found was that most of the cases that are reported in the scientific literature actually involve dogs not cats. Uh, anecdotally, and in some case studies, there were cats that would eat their owner. But generally, what would happen would be that a cat would go for the, the soft parts, generally the face. So you might have a cat that would eat part of the nose, the lips, the ears, those kinds of smaller soft parts of the body. Whereas with dogs, there were just a wide variety of cases that were really sometimes pretty grisly, you know, where because a dog being a bigger animal, it's also going to be and, and a scavenger animal, you know, it can actually consume in some cases the entire human body pretty much. Well, that's just gross. So I guess I'd rather <laughs> I be with my cat than my dog. <laughs> you know, I don't want to blame any pets because this is, you know, this is the animals being animals. And in some cases, they might be trapped in a home and starving. In other cases, they may be really afraid. This is a very traumatic situation for them for, that their person has died. So I don't think it's about blaming the pets or about cats or dogs being good or bad. 
it's not a good or a bad cat or dog that does this. It's just a cat or a dog that's in the right situation for it to happen. So it is gross. It's not something that anyone wants to happen to themselves or to their loved ones after they die. But I think we have to also just recognize that you can't blame animals or hold them to the same standards that we would hold people to. They're just being animals. So even though it's kind of fascinating and a little bit gross, they're still animals and they still have instincts. So I think that that is really important to note. Yeah, I do too. And, you know, in terms of understanding why animals do this, you might imagine that it would only be in situations where the animal is starving, where, you know, maybe someone dies alone and their body is not discovered for some period of time. And that does happen in some cases. There was one case that I came across in which a woman passed away and her body was not found for a period of over a month. And during that time, she had several dogs in the house and they had consumed basically the entire body by the time they were discovered. There were really only a few bones left. So that's a case where probably the dogs were starving and that body was the only subsistence they had. However, there are a lot of other cases where animals were eating the dead, even though there was other food available and it was very quick after the death. And that seemed more perplexing because you think, well, the animal's not starving. It's got a food bowl full of food right there. And it's only been, the person has only been dead for an hour or two. And yet the dog would eat part of the owner or there'd be significant injuries from, from biting. And that seemed more perplexing. But there was one scientist who I thought had a really good and interesting explanation for this that I think makes a lot of sense, which is that, you know, for an animal in that situation, when you think of what, what a dog or your cat would do if you're asleep or if they're trying to wake you, you know, they often will come to your face and lick or nudge you. My cat, when I was asleep and she wanted to wake me up in the morning, she would come and she would take her little soft paw and just kind of pat me on my closed eyelids, <laughs> which I thought was really cute. But that was, you know, she would try to make contact with my face and get me to wake up and communicate with her. And likewise, dogs will do the same thing. You know, they kind of are attuned to our faces. So what might be happening in some cases is that the animal sees the person laying on the floor or whatever and, and tries to wake them or arouse them. And often they will go to the face first. And so a lot of times with these injuries, you do see injuries to the head and face and the arms and hands. And it, so it makes sense to me that the animal might first be trying to rouse you. And then when it isn't successful, when you don't wake up, then they start to panic. They get anxious and fearful, and they might start licking your face. And licking in a fearful animal it might pretty easily turn to biting. And once the animal has bitten, once they taste blood, then, you know, instinctively that may turn into, that biting may turn into eating as well. So it kind of makes sense to me. When you think about it, it really is sad, you know, that rather than being something that is a sign that the dog is not loyal to its person, it might be that the dog is just really freaked out and upset and that this kind of licking behavior turns to biting and ultimately, that's how this ends up happening. Almost like an accident. Almost like an accident. I mean, it's just not the, a sign that the dog is being aggressive. 
you know, it tends to look pretty different, in fact, from the pattern of behavior that you see when wild dogs or wolves feed in the wild, for example. You know, they're scavengers, they will come across an animal or they will kill an animal and then they will tend to go into the abdomen first. And if you see like a, a wild dog or a wolf feeding, they'll attack that animals, like a deer, whatever it is, they'll attack the stomach area and they'll be eating those organs that are very high nutrition first. So that's when they're eating for food. When they're eating for survival, they're going to eat those parts first. But what you see in a lot of these domestic cases where a pet has eaten its owner tends to be more, like I said, those injuries to the face, maybe the arms and hands and extremities. So it's almost the opposite of what you would see in terms of their behavior from if they were just eating to survive in the wild, if it was more of a predator-prey situation. So, so I think it probably would be safe to assume that my cat doesn't view me as a prey item. And I think everybody can probably <laughs> assume that their cat does not view them as a prey item, just based on the statistics that you shared with us. I think that's probably right. I don't think cats really see us as prey. You know, we're large. I don't know what they see us as exactly. I mean, a lot of people say, does a cat see us as just another big cat or as a person? I don't know that cats are really worried about what species we are. I don't think they're necessarily thinking of it in that way. But in any case, I don't think that they're seeing us as prey. We're not a little mouse or something like that that they would normally eat for food. And I think it makes sense to me that the same kind of logic that the scientists applied to dogs might apply to cats. You know, my cat always came to my face to wake me up. And, and so I would imagine that that same kind of thing could happen with the cat licking the owner's face, trying to wake it up. And then when they don't wake up, they might try a little harder by biting and then biting doesn't work. So, you know, I think the same thing can apply in cat behavior than it probably can from dogs. And I think it's really important. I agree with you on that person's assessment that anxiety could play a role because separation anxiety and anxious, high-strung animals can do things that we see as destructive or harmful. And really, it's just an outlet for the stress. Yeah, I'm sure you must see that in your practice all the time with, you know, so-called bad behaviors <laughs> from dogs and cats. But yeah, I, I would be, rather than being worried about if I die, my dog might eat me because it's not loyal to me somehow, I'd be much more concerned about the kinds of dogs that are have a lot of separation anxiety and are very anxious dogs. Those might be the dogs that might be more likely to respond in this way to their owner dying. It's not like this is a super common thing. So I'm not trying to scare everyone like your dog or your cat is definitely going to eat you when you die. That's not going to happen in most cases. But it certainly is not impossible. And it is something that I think that we should keep in mind when we do have people in our lives who we care about who live alone with a pet. You know, no one wants to have weeks go by before they're found. So just keeping an eye on each other. If you have elderly neighbors, checking in on them, that's probably the best way to prevent something like this from happening. Other I, than just not having cats and dogs, but who wants to do that? Nobody, absolutely. So, <laughs> so I think that it's interesting and it's gross. It's not really a fear factor, like you said. It's not common, but it is kind of interesting and kind of fits along with our theme of gory details today. So you have some other things that you kind of wanted to talk about that, that you had written about that were sort of gory and sort of gross. So what else have you got? 
Well, so one story that I'm working on right now that I thought your listeners might be interested in is what is actually in your cat or dog's mouth and how gross is it? Some people may have heard, oh, don't worry about your dog licking your face because a dog's mouth is cleaner than a human's. Well, I was pretty skeptical of that. So I've been looking into that question myself and figuring out what really is in our pets' mouths and how gross is it when when they're licking our faces. And certainly in your practice, I'm sure you've seen a lot of cases of people getting infections from being bitten. That can be very dangerous. But the question was also just what's in their mouths? I mean, how gross is it in there? What kind of bacteria are in there? Some people think that dogs' mouths are really clean And from what I've seen in the literature, that doesn't seem to really be the case. No, I can tell you that our own mouths are not really clean, but cats specifically have some pretty common dental infections and bacteria that seem to be a little bit more common in cats even than other species. But nobody's mouth is really a bed of roses, if you will. (laughs) It's, It's always pretty gross. It is. It is. And, you know, I actually found a scientist who has studied the microbiome of cats and dogs' mouths. That means all of the bacteria. The microbiome is the the full set of bacteria and microbes that live on us or inside us. And we're learning a lot these days about the human microbiome and how all of the bacteria in our guts can both help us and hurt us. Well, the same kind of thing is going on for cats and dogs. And I found a scientist named Floyd Dewhurst, who is associated with the Harvard Dental School and the Forsyth Institute. And he actually has gone in and using genetics, looked at all of the different bacterial species that are in not only the human mouth, but also a dog's mouth and a cat's mouth. And it was really fascinating talking to him this morning about this because he has found that there are hundreds of different bacterial species that live in all of our mouths, whether we're cats, dogs, or people. There are hundreds of bacteria. And the way he put it was, our mouths are teeming with bacteria. There is no such thing as a clean mouth per se. Oh, (laughs) Um, I agree. Gross. Yeah. Yeah. And, but what's interesting too, is that there are very different species of bacteria that live in each of our mouths. So for example, If you look at all of the bacteria that live in the human mouth and the dog mouth, if you were to compare those, there's only about 15% overlap of those bacterial species that live in the human's mouth and the dog's mouth. Similar for humans versus cats. Cats and dogs, on the other hand, have about 50% similarity, he said, in the bacterial species that live in their mouths. Now, that's in large part because both dogs and cats are carnivores. So they have a mostly meat-based diet, and humans eat so many more carbohydrates than they do. And so we have other bacteria in our mouths that are adapted to live in that habitat where we're feeding our mouth bacteria all the sugars and carbs and pasta that we eat, whereas the bacteria that live in a cat's mouth or a dog's mouth, those are adapted to take advantage of the proteins and all of the meat that they're eating. So because the bacteria that live in our mouths are so different, that's one of the reasons why there is some potential for infection or problems when you are getting 
the bacteria from a cat or dog's mouth onto your skin or, or especially if it goes through your skin, if you're bitten or if the animal licks any kind of open wound or licks, you know, gets their saliva in your mouth, as we all have had happen. You're in the middle of saying something and here comes a dog with a big slobbery kiss and you get a mouthful of their spit. So, you know, there are ways for their bacteria to get introduced inside you to get through your skin. And that's where problems tend to arise. But it's happening because we're not normally carrying those same species. So our immune systems and our good bacteria may not be quite as good at fighting off the bacteria that come from a dog's mouth or a cat's mouth. It's kind of more of a foreign invader for us. So that's why you tend to get some things that are perfectly fine to be in a dog's mouth and are not hurting the dog, but you don't want those things to get through your skin. And like you said, cats as well. Cats have some particular bacteria that are pretty bad. I've read about some pretty bad cases of people getting nasty infections just from being licked without being bitten. But I, again, I'm not trying to just scare everyone. That tends to happen in cases where either it gets through the skin because maybe you have a wound or in cases where people's immune system isn't really up to the challenge. So in elderly people and in infants, you want to be all the more careful about even licking, even if it's not a bite, because some of those bad bacteria can be passed along even from getting licked. Because, you know, what happens is you get it on your skin and it's not such a big problem if it's on your skin, but then you touch your skin and then maybe you touch your eyes or you touch your mouth or, you know, there are ways for some of those bacteria then to get into your body. Well, I too write things and I would say on the carnivore thing that cats are definitely carnivores and you cannot make your cat into a vegetarian. But there is a controversial, I guess that's a controversial point about dogs that they have evolved to be more like us as omnivores and that they mm -hmm. are no longer carnivores. So, mm -hmm. I, you know, and that's pretty interesting. And I've written a lot of stuff and done a lot of research about that. But the mm -hmm. fact remains, their mouths are pretty different and their diets are pretty different from ours. So it doesn't really matter for the, the gross episode today. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I would suspect that because their diets have changed to be more like ours, like we even even in pet food, a lot of pet food, I understand has a lot of grains in it, which would not be part of the wolf diet or the you know, what you would think of as their natural diet in the wild. So we probably have changed not only their diet, but probably we have changed their microbiome to some extent by doing that. I'm sure that there's been probably some shift in the microbes in their mouth because they are getting more of those carbohydrates than they're used to. Nevertheless, what the scientists tend to find is that is that the dog's mouth is still very different from humans. Humans, we have a lot of species of streptococcus bacteria in our mouths, which are very good at breaking down carbohydrates. Whereas in a dog's mouth, you'll generally see maybe only one or two species of streptococcus, he said, and at low levels, it's not a dominant thing in the mouth. So, so you see kind of big differences, but there is a little bit of overlap there too, where we, we share some species of bacteria in common. And in fact, there have even been some studies that show that by living with our pets, we actually do end up possibly swapping some bacteria back and forth to each other. So that if you look at the, the bacterial species that are in a pet owner's mouth and you look at their pet as well, there are some cases where they've actually seen the exact same strain of the bacteria 
in the pet's mouth and the the person's mouth. (laughs) And we can imagine how that has probably happened. That's probably been some slobbery kisses. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Not really something I want to think a whole lot about. Because I, (laughs) I was telling you when we talked a little bit about this before that I get kisses in the mouth a lot at work. And I just have to kind of skip over that and hope that my immune system is okay. But not from cats. I don't get big slobbery kisses from cats. So good on that. That's (laughs) that's another, you know, I think kind of wonderful benefit of cats is that they are not as slobbery as dogs. I don't know how much saliva they produce, but, you know, their mouths are smaller. Their tongues don't seem as wet. They don't seem to transfer as much saliva to you when they lick you. And so if you're like me and you don't really love those slobbery kisses, then that's one of the things that I really appreciate about cats is that I don't end up getting a face full of goo every time I come home. I love that about my cat, too. He just butts me with his head, but there's not really any slobbery, (laughs) no slobber involved. So there is another really cool story that I saw on your gory details about rats, cats and rats. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. So, you know, as we know, cats are great hunters and particularly for rodents. Yeah, you know, especially for mice. I think people really definitely think of them for mice because if you've ever had a cat bring you a present of a mouse that it found, that they will sometimes be able to catch large numbers of them. This is why people used to always keep and often still do keep cats around in their barns to catch the mice. But what some people might not know is that cats actually can be pretty good at catching rats, too. Even though rats are bigger, cats can definitely go after a rat. And in some places, there are cities that are actually taking advantage of this fact. And I found that in Washington, D.C., where I used to live, and which definitely has had a rat problem, (laughs) that there is a program that has started not too long ago called Blue Collar Cats run through the Humane Rescue League there. And what they're doing is now, and I know that some of these programs are controversial, they're doing basically a modified version of a trap, neuter, release program. So some of your listeners probably have heard of trap, neuter, and release programs. These are like alley cat kind of programs. Sometimes, you know, one is called alley cat allies. And what they do is in cities, especially where alley cats, feral cats are more of an issue, they will catch the feral cats, have them spayed or neutered, vaccinated, basically given a thorough health checkup. And then they often will clip their ears to show that they have been through the program. And then they will re-release them. The controversial part of that is the re-releasing them. You know, the choices are basically, these are feral animals, they're not adoptable. So the choices are basically to euthanize them or to re-release them. So aside from the controversy about whether you think it's more ethical to do one versus the other, in a number of big cities in particular, these programs are quite popular and, and a lot of cat lovers do prefer the option of keeping the cats healthy, spaying or neutering them so that they're not further reproducing and then re-releasing them back into the city where they often live in alleys or behind houses or businesses. And sometimes neighbors will feed them, sometimes not. Well, so what this new program called Blue Collar Cats is doing is they're blue collar cats because they're being put to work. So instead of taking the cats and just re-releasing them back where they were found, 
In some cases, they're allowing people who are in rat infested areas to basically become caretakers for these cats. So when they're re-released, they are acclimated to their new home in a rat infested area. It might be an alley by staying for several weeks in a cage where they're being fed and sheltered for a period of time so that they get used to that new home. They get used to this as a place where they get food and they get shelter from the outdoors, but they're not house pets. They are outdoors in a covered area. So then the cats, after a few weeks, when they're acclimated, they're released. And the idea is that they would then stick around that area or neighborhood, that the caretaker will continue to provide them some food and shelter, but that there will also be an abundance of rats for them to hunt. So I went and I spoke with several people who had taken in these cats and pretty much universally, they all really liked the program and said that their cats were indeed catching rats, that they had seen evidence of that in the form of dead rats in some cases, and that they were very happy with it. The cats also may be keeping the rats away in some cases just by being there because the rats will tend to avoid an area that smells like cats. So they may be a deterrent in that way too. I thought it was a really interesting idea and a really interesting program putting these cats to work catching rats. Some people said, I don't think cats would be very good at catching rats. <laughs> and there's certainly some people that are in this program that would dispute that, that say, no, they think their cats are pretty good rat catchers. But there's another group in New York City that's doing something similar with dogs as well. And the dogs, I can say, definitely are very good at catching rats. These are kind of dogs like terriers and so forth that were really bred for catching small animals like rats and other rodents. and they are astounding. I've seen video of these dogs at work and they will just dive into a pile of trash bags in New York City and just come out throwing rats right and left, basically. Wow. They're just rat killing machines. So I don't know if cats are as good a rat killing machine as some of these trained dogs are, but they certainly seem to be having some effect for the people who are taking them in. I like it because, you know, if they're getting the medical care that they need and they're altered so they're not perpetuating the problem, I like the idea of putting cats to work. I think it's super. So today we've talked about gross. We've talked about would my cat eat me if I died? And we have also talked about how disgusting our mouths and the mouths of our cats are. And then we close the day with rats. I think this is a great, spooky, gruesome, gross episode. And I love that you joined me today. Can you tell all of my listeners how to track you down and how to read more of your content and things? Absolutely. I would love for people to do that. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Gory Erica. And you can also find my blog, Gory Details, at National Geographic. Either go to nationalgeographic.com and search Gory Details, or the easiest way to find it is just to Google Gory Details at National Geographic, and you'll find a link that will take you right to all of the old blog posts. And if you can't find Erica, you can find me because I'm on Twitter and Google Plus and Facebook and everything I can think of. And I'll help you find Erica if you need to. But I would love to thank Erica again for joining us. Thank all of my cat lovers and all of my listeners for joining me with us today on Nine Lives with Dr. Cat. 
Also, always want to thank my producer, Mark Winter, for his amazing work on this show. And I hope that you all have a perfect day. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.